lovely to be here once again. Um, a lot of you look familiar. I've come a couple of times. Uh, I think about two years ago, and then again shortly after that. I, I can't remember exactly. I've been out here a couple of times, and each time uh, Gil and I talk about uh, coming by and offering some thoughts. So I feel a certain connection with you, and it's lovely to be here. <laughs> Uh, I'm just enjoying Palo Alto uh, tremendously. Well, the weather around here, particularly, just so gorgeous. I don't, you know, you're, you're in a heaven realm. You're in a Deva realm. <laughs> it's true. It's it's like it's you know. It, I, I told my friend it almost gets boring after a while. It's so gorgeous, <laughs> just so even and so beautiful. So may our may our minds be the same. Uh, what I wanted to offer today is some thoughts about uh, a subject that I have found very, very helpful uh, in my own practice, and that is the uh, the, the subject of uh, going for refuge, uh, tisarana, the taking refuge or going for refuge in the triple gem. And uh, I think really my understanding of it took off a little bit when I started to contemplate what are actually the more subtle uh, meanings behind this very simple act, as well as what are sort of the devotional aspects of it. So I thought I'd offer some thoughts today, and uh, hopefully you'll find yourself in here somewhere. There's there's a, um, a a little bit of something for everybody in this simple devotional and uh, practical act. Uh, refuge is said to be uh, sort of the, the the doorway through which we enter the Buddhist teachings. Um, if you um, consider, for example, the, the practice of uh, good conduct or morality, um, that's said to be the foundation of practice, uh, the foundation of the teachings, that really um, one has to settle there, you know, find um, that place of um, leaning the heart towards goodness, and that that serves such a great base for um, the purification of the heart and the purification of the mind. So, you know, we basically we start there. But then the meditation practice is said to be um, basically like if you, if you hold the whole uh, scene as a, as a home, as a house, that, that with sila being the foundation, the meditation practice is said to be the stairs that lead to the rooftop of freedom. So that if we apply ourselves through the meditation practice, then the, the heights of freedom, the heights of liberation of the mind are possible. And refuge, and I love this image, re- refuge is said to be the doorway through which we enter. And, you know, you just consider the experience of, of um, your own heart and uh, everybody in this room. There's some point in our lives where, um, for whatever reason, I know for my own self I was suffering a lot, you know, and, and uh, the realization that the things that I was taking refuge in in the world the things that I was taking refuge in in my own mind weren't doing it for me. Uh, and so we reach a point, perhaps, where there's a certain wisdom, there's a certain coming together where, where you go, well, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another approach that would work more effectively than getting the things that I want and getting away from the things that I don't want and you know, living in such a, a, a worldly and, and consumer kind of way. So. You know, most of us come to that point, and that's that's the inroad. You know, the wish to take refuge in something other than what we what we're most familiar with. So, you know, those who are new to Buddhism kind of pass through that door at the entryway. But then, over time, 
you know, you find you just keep re-entering it and re-entering it and re-entering it, you know. And the commitment, the sense of what it is that that means, just keeps get deeper, get, getting deeper and more profound. So I've loved this, this act, you know, this simple act where we put our hands together in Anjali and we, you know, say to the Buddha, I go for refuge, to the Dhamma, I go for refuge, to the Sangha, I go for refuge. Usually it's done, done in Pali, but um, this, just this, you know, this um, uh, reverential posture, um, sort of just close to the heart, representing an expression from the heart, and the, the wish to, um, in, in a way, give oneself over. So there's this simplicity of the simple uh, act, the, the verses that we say and the fact that we sing them together, but the profundity of that, you know, it really shouldn't escape us. It, it's basically going to what is really at the very heart of the Buddhist teachings, which is that uh, from our own egocentric or self-absorbed perspective, trying to run our lives doesn't do very good. <laughs> it doesn't get us to the happiness that we seek. And so um, the, the effort is to, in, in a way, give oneself over, to, to surrender that self-absorbed perspective and say, well, you know, I've been trying, I've been trying to get this right, <laughs> but I, I, I think I need to turn to something else. So it's a very profound um, gesture, a very profound act. So it, it's not to say, and I think this is important too, it's not to say that one doesn't take refuge in other things. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything in the Buddhist teachings that, that says one doesn't turn to things of a worldly nature for comfort or for ease. You know, it, there's, there is a certain, Buddha talked extensively about a certain pleasure in these kinds of um, experiences. and. And so one does turn to things like that for comfort. But uh, I guess what he's saying is that uh, the true refuge, the, the true liberation from suffering, is found in turning oneself over to Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And there's this wonderful reading from the Dhammapada where he says this, they, they go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to park and tree shrines, people threatened by danger, but that's not the secure refuge. That's not the supreme refuge. It's not the refuge, having gone to which one gains release from all stress and all suffering. But when, having gone to Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha for refuge, one sees the Four Noble Truths with right discernment, suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering, that is the secure refuge. That is the supreme refuge. That is the true refuge. Having gone to which one gains release from all suffering and stress. And I love that. It's just so, so beautiful as a reminder of one's understanding and commitment. So when we look at each of these, I just want to look at two aspects of each, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. One is said to be sort of the the more uh, simple or mundane aspect of it, and the other one, um, more a more transcendent application, or what I would call maybe something that you see more in your meditation practice, the more practical, the more meditational aspect of it. And each of these um, would be very um, helpful to contemplate. So with uh, going to refuge, uh, going for refuge to the Buddha, um, in, the, in the simple or mundane aspect, this has to do really with uh, turning one's attention towards the, the historical person, Gotama, the Buddha. This person who was born and lived and died 2,500 years ago and, and taught so, such profound teachings 
for us. Um, and, and really, even after having the inclination not to teach, decided to do it all the same. So this is a, a it, it's to contemplate what it is that this person accomplished. You know, to, to, bring, to, to really just reflect on that. Now, for some people, they find this very easy. You know, that it's sort of like considering this person and experiencing a sense of gratitude and appreciation for the accomplishment of this person. Um, and so they find, you know, that just, just ceremonies and devotional things come easily for some people and they can't wait to bow to something or, or you know, to express in that way. Uh, but for a lot of people, that's not so easy. So, um, you know, there's some, there's some help in the teachings, which is to, to re- remind us or to, to consider or contemplate what it is that um, being a Buddha is. What does that mean? You know, what did this person 2,500 years ago accomplish? You know, what sets this person apart? And to contemplate that, to let that into the heart. So it's said that a Buddha is someone who has overcome um, the defilements of the heart and mind, overcome these self-absorbed tendencies to the optimal degree. It's uh, somebody who has done this in a way that it's it's so complete that it's like the the defilements of the heart and mind are said to have been um, liberated um, totally, meaning they're all gone. And completely, meaning that they'll uh, they'll never arise again. There's no trace <laughs> of of greed, hatred, or delusion in the heart. And I said, oh. <laughs> when I contemplate that, it's like it boggles the mind. You know, we sit. We're meditators. You know, we sit and uh, look at our hearts and minds uh, quite regularly, and you know, look at our activities throughout the day. We, we know what's in the heart. It's amazing to be able to have accomplished a, a condition wherein this, uh, there's purity, wherein these difficult states, these harmful states to self and others don't arise. You know, just sitting with that, one can almost feel this sense of wanting to bow to that. You know, that's a huge accomplishment. One who has perfected virtue. There's lots of virtues that we talk about when we talk about the Buddha, but the the two that are foremost are um, wisdom and compassion. So this is a person who um, uh, understands the the totality uh, of truth, the totality um, of what it is that we need to know to be free, and one whose compassion is said to be infinite. uh, I know for myself, just as you peel away the difficult states of mind and you begin to see what's left, you know, all of us, I'm sure, have had that experience of having the, the mind calm and clear and free, even if only for a few seconds, and, and you feel the, the complete uh, understanding and, and compassion that exists in the heart that is purified. So, you know, at this level, going to to the Buddha for refuge, it has to do with sort of bowing to the immensity of this accomplishment. You know, many people who have meditated for a long time, don't, you, you, don't, you find that less and less difficult to do. <laughs> you know, so, oh, just trying to do it ourselves, and this person did it without um, the guidance that we have. You know, it's tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. 
it, it's said to be um, a sign of spiritual maturity that one can bow in the presence of greatness, that one can recognize greatness and bow in the presence of it. And, and I, I like that a lot. It, it really points to uh, a humility that brings a great happiness to the heart. To, if you can feel that surrender that exists in that, to be able to acknowledge and accept one's own frailties, the places where we need to grow, but to do that in a, you know, in a with a heart that isn't judgmental or isn't critical of that, it's just to say, oh wow, I got a lot to learn, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got, I've got a, long, a ways to go, and to be at ease with that, you know, I, I really love that that feeling, just trying to cultivate that that feeling in one's own heart. So it's good to ask oneself, for example, what what would one do if we saw the Buddha today? You know, if the Buddha was alive today, would we have that capacity to to recognize it? Even you know, look in my own heart, the jealousy and the comparing and the criticizing and the you know conceit. You know, what you know kind of attitudes in the mind. You know, would we? What would we do? <laughs> would we really even uh, be able to uh, appreciate what stands before us? Uh, I was listening to a tape not long ago of one of the, the monks in the Western Forest Sangha, um, Ajahn Monindo, and um, he was telling this beautiful story where he, he had the good fortune, uh, he's been a monk for probably 25, 30 years now, and uh, he had the, the good fortune of being in Northeast Thailand um, when Ajahn Chah was alive, and um, certainly uh, visiting the other monasteries where he's gone to see Mahabua. And, um, and he had this occasion where the two of them, Ajahn Chah and Mahabu, were both at the same monastery. And um, he would watch them um, when they did the chanting and, and bow to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And he said he was so moved by their gesture of um, surrender and bowing. You know, here's these two men who, by many accounts, were quite accomplished themselves, may even be arhats. He did not, don't know for sure, but. Um, and, and their capacity to uh, bow completely to the, the greatness of the Buddha. He said the image of it just stayed with him. So, you know, it uh, impressed him so much it stayed with him for more than tw- uh, 20 years. And it had that, uh, that same effect on me when I heard it. You know, just imagining somebody who's so accomplished being able to, to bow in that way. Can I do the same? And not literally. It's not that we have to bow. It's, it's, the, it's the heart sentiment that one is going for. Can, can we uh, accomplish that gesture internally? So this is the, the, like the simple level of going for refuge to the Buddha. And um, the transcendent level really involves uh, making the effort to, to be with experience from the perspective of the Buddha. To, you know, and that, that's our training. That's really what we're training for in, to do in meditation. It's like that this capacity to uh, settle back, as I was trying to describe in the meditation practice this morning, just to settle back, to relax, um, to open the chest, to create a sense of space in the heart and the mind, a, a sense of receptivity such that what arises can be known. You know, without this, without this movement of the heart and mind to, to grab hold or to push away the, that, that um, compulsive, really, uh, activity of greed, hatred, and delusion 
in the heart? You know, can, can we cultivate this capacity to be the one who knows? You know, the, the Buddha is, is, the, is the knowing, the, the one who knows. So can, can we do that in our own practice? In Dzogchen, they have an expression that's um, called uh, sitting in your royal seat. Uh, and, and one is encouraged to cultivate that sense in, in the meditation practice, to literally sit, sit back as if you were royalty watching a parade <laughs> go by the reviewing stand, you know, and, and to have a, a sense of relating to sensations, to feelings, to thoughts, from that kind of posture, you know, where one is resting in a spacious, spaciousness. You know, my, my teacher says, you know, just, just try to get this feeling of um, open, receptive awareness. Just try to get that feeling. He'd go like, can you feel that? Said, yeah, yeah, I, got, I think I got it. It's sort of down. It's sort of under everything. He says, yeah. Okay, you got it? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, stay there. <laughs> just stay there. <laughs> and so the, the practice becomes one of staying there, you know getting a sense of what we're talking about in this um, experience of knowing awareness and cultivating, training the mind to rest there, to, to be there instead of in the things that it knows, picking them all, picking them up and putting them down, picking up, putting it down, you know, that constant mental activity. So our, our task is to experience the fullness of this space. And when we can do that, then we step outside of this self-absorbed perspective and, and just notice things from the perspective of Buddha. You know, that's the training. That's refuge in Buddha. It's very much what we're doing every minute that we meditate. So, uh, refuge in Dhamma. Um, the, the Dhamma is also seen in two ways, uh, from this sort of simple perspective and then the, the more transcendent one. And at the simple level, it's taking refuge in the teachings. So, you know, you come to something like this on a Sunday morning and um, listen to, to Dhamma. Or you have a, a library, you study Dhamma. You, you open the, uh, the books of the Pali Canon and look at the various uh, teachings that uh, were recorded that the, you know, the Buddha taught for like 45 years. It's a very, very rich body of teachings. And so one um, uh, turns to these. You know, it's said that the, the path that leads to the end of suffering can only be known during the uh, periods when uh, the dispensation of a teaching Buddha are still alive. And we happen to be living in one of those periods. I'm getting goosebumps, you know. It's like it's, a, it's an amazing good fortune. The fact that this, uh, this dispensation of teachings is alive right now. And that we um, have ears to hear. And that we have the wisdom to listen. It's not, this is these, any one of these is considered very rare. And we have the coming together of all of this in our lives. You know, and you only have to look around to see. I think sometimes when we come together in groups like this, we can have the sense that everybody in the world is into this stuff, you know. And um, it's just, it, it, it gets kind of myopic because it's our world and 
And uh, so many, uh, uh, we have the good fortune of having these rich friendships with people who are, are good <laughs> and kind and want to be free. But it's not, it's not by any stretch of the imagination mainstream. You know? It's not that common an experience. And, and here we are. Wow, that's really good fortune. Very good fortune. So I think we've all had this sense of, of feeling uh, a great relief that we have the, these teachings to turn to. Um, and, you know, I can think of a few examples where um, uh, there was a gal that uh, was on long-term retreat when I was at IMS, and she uh, was practicing there for um, nearly two years, you know, continuously sitting and walking in meditation. And, you know, repeatedly she would come in for interviews and she would report that um, nothing was happening, it wasn't going anywhere, you know, I want to give up, uh, I still have all these awful states of mind, and, you know, and just like meditation teachers will say to you, you know, don't, you can't know what's happening, <laughs> don't judge it, um, trust in the process, more is happening than you think is knowing. You know, this, is, this was our constant exchange, our constant dialogue over the time that she was there. And then um, she went. Uh, she left, and she went back home. And uh, you know, not too long afterwards, she gave me a call, and uh, she said, uh, "You know, you were right. Things are so different. You know, I'm, I'm finding that there are so many ways that I used to get caught that I'm not getting caught. There's places where I think, well, wait a minute. This is one of those situations where I used to be this way, and I'm not being that way. You know." And, and she was feeling a tremendous happiness at, um, you know, having had the opportunity to hear Dhamma and to apply it and to see it actually taking root in her life. Uh, Ajahn Chah said that the Dhamma cools, you know, that if we turn, if we remember to turn to it when there is difficulty, then um, you'll find, oh, yeah, that kind of feeling, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, okay, I forgot. You know, because we do forget. We constantly forget. So there's the, the constant remembering. And I think it's no accident that in, in the teachings about the, the five hindrances, in, in all of them, it, when Buddha talked about the antidotes for these difficult states of mind, um, he, he talked about uh, turning to the, to the teachings, turning to the Dhamma. And listening to a talk or reading something, um, you know, and, and that that was one of the best antidotes to being caught in, the, in that particular state. So you can get the sense that, you know, this is how we snap out of it, and that Dhamma uh, itself is a refuge, turning literally to the teachings. So at this simple level, it has to do with having the good sense and remembering that's the main thing, <laughs> remembering to turn to them when we're in difficulty. So at this more transcendent level, um, <clears throat> or what I would call the meditational level, taking refuge in, in Dhamma um, has to do with a, sort of t- a deeper level of um, experiencing the teachings so that all of us have had our insights. We've all, in, in one way or another, seen for ourselves, at some level, the truth of these teachings. You know, it's what keeps us coming back. Because if you're like me, it's like, 
I used to have an attention span of about maybe four or five years with religious teachings, you know, until I came to Buddhism. Because after a while, there weren't answers or, or there were questions that came up that it didn't, I, di- I didn't necessarily see where things were leading. But, you know, it's been, uh, it's been 18 years now with Buddhism. <laughs> it just keeps getting better. <laughs> you know, it kept, it's more clear and more crisp. And so, you know, one has this sense of, of actually seeing for oneself the truth and, and having one's understanding of that be taken to richer and richer and subtler and subtler levels, you know. So, you know, you, we take refuge there so that when one is caught in a difficult situation or a difficult state, for example, you, we can remember, oh, wait a minute, I can hold this in a different way. I've actually seen the, the fact that I don't have to go into it. I may not remember it in this moment. You know, I may be behaving in a way that, where I keep getting caught, but I've seen it before, and I know it's true. And that right there, you know, contemplating one's own experience of truth is what keeps, it's like it's a refuge. It's, oh, you know, I can go there. I don't have to keep getting pulled in, you know. And, and we do that, you know, over and over again. We keep coming back to our own understanding, our own experience of truth, and, and resting there. It's fabulous, isn't it? It's just so rich and so freeing. You know, the, the idea that this is liberation becomes clearer and clearer to us, you know. This is really freedom. You know, I don't have to get caught in it. So taking refuge in, in, in Dhamma is, um, it's kind of like one thing one of my teachers said to me one time. He said that, that freedom isn't about um, attaining a perfect moment somewhere. You know, there's this constant quest for perfection and happiness outside of oneself. You know, and, and we've been following that quest for who knows how long, you know. But it, it's more in really getting it that, or, or letting go of the idea that there is a perfect moment and resting in that. And that can feel heavy or intense until you actually experience it, the great freedom of the first noble truth, you know, the great freedom of having understanding uh, of, of the fact of suffering, that it's like this. <laughs> There is difficulty. We have to experience things that we don't like. We're going to be separated from things that we don't do like. We're not going to get what we want. Those are the words of the Buddha in this first noble truth. And you know, you can you can rest in that and go. Bleh. <laughs> you can, or you can rest in that and go. Wow. <laughs> you know, I get it. Ooh, <laughs> you know, I don't have to keep going. I, I, I can after things. I can I can just rest in that simple truth, and the way things are suddenly becomes good enough. <laughs> it's fine. It's you know it, there isn't a perfect moment. You know, it gets it's pretty darn nice, and there's nice things about being a human being, but this quest for something other or something more enhanced can be let go of. It's like, ah. Oh. And, and then you find the real peace. You find this, oh, the way that it is, that's Dhamma. The way that it is, is good enough. <laughs> <But> wow. 
I like that, you know, it feels so freeing. So then we have this uh, refuge in Sangha. Uh, again, we look at this in two ways. And um, at, at the simple level, I, I think it's quite clear that the Buddha is saying, uh, take refuge in, literally, in the order of monks and nuns. That basically, he's saying, um, you know, he came to these realizations and then contemplated, reflected, uh, what's, what's going to be a life that is going to be conducive to other people seeing the same things that I've seen? To, and, and so he went to the trouble to establish this order of monks and nuns and, and saying that this is, this is a skillful way to live, this is a way to, to help you see these truths for yourselves. So, you know, some people will hear that and think that, um, well, what the Buddha is saying is, is that you can't get free as a lay person, you know, that, that the, uh, the uh, order of monks and nuns are somehow an elite group and, and superior. And I, I don't think that that's even remotely what he's saying. It's just more or less establishing a means of living that is conducive it's something that we can contemplate and reflect upon. It's not that one necessarily has to take it up. You know, I, I, uh, for a while, I, I spent a lot of time with the monks and nuns, and for many years, um, just really coming from my own comparing mind and my own conceit, I would uh, re- relate to them in a way that felt diminished, you know. And constantly, it was, it was almost like lay life was what was left over if you can't make it as a monk or a nun, you know. And it really took me ten years to overcome that, just by constantly working with that thought and um, the, the, the problems that it gave rise to. And, and also just spending time with them and learning about skillful ways of living. It's about skillful ways of living. It's not about the form that you take to live it, you know. And, and so, um, you know, I began to to uh, take a lot of the aspects of, to talk to them more about the way they live and why, and, and apply those in, in my own life. So that, for example, one time I was asking one of the senior monks, Ajahn Viradamo, I said, you know, what, what is it that sets your life apart? What, what makes it different from mine? Um, uh, uh, and he said, well, I don't know that it's that different, but I can tell you this, that we um, focus our life around three main things. And that is um, restraint of the senses, being content with little, and um, deferring to elders. You know, and and what I've really held those is a rich contemplation for myself. Just seeing the value of restraint. That if you constantly are going after things, then we never get we never get to contemplate the arising of that impulse to go after. You know, because once you're caught in the activity, you can't see it. So the effort is to just restrain a little bit and begin to get a sense of what these compulsive and obsessive impulses are, and 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 turn the mind around and look at look at ourselves and see uh, the suffering that's uh, uh, caught up in those kinds of activities. You know, begin to see that for ourselves. You know, being content with little. And it, it, that's a state of heart. It's not that one can't have a lot of money and can't um, have a lot of things around oneself. It's more a, a case of how you live within 
the life that we have? You know, is there a quality of, of satisfaction and contentment? And the deference to elders, which is kind of like the hallmark of monastic life, you know, uh, seniority rules the day, you know, whoever is the senior most person is the, is the one who, who calls the shots. And a lot of, some of that is changing, uh, but it's actually um, still held as something of great value because of the teaching involved in that. It goes back to overcoming self-view. You know, can I override this impulse to always be in control and on top and the one who calls the shots? You know, it, internally, you know, in my own thoughts and in my own heart and externally in the world. Can I uh, be okay if things don't always go my way? <laughs> you know, one time in meditation practice, I, I, I stumbled on this incredible willfulness in my heart. You know, I want it my way. <laughs> and how much suffering uh, in my experience was coming out of that sense of willfulness and, and control and mastery. So, you know, this is just beginning to get a, a sense of taking refuge in, in this uh, simple way. And at the transcendent level, um, taking refuge in Sangha has a lot more to do with um, good conduct and keeping the company of good people. You know, again, it's no accident that as an an antidote to all of the five hindrances, the Buddha um, recommended that you keep the company of people who aren't greedy, you keep the company of people who aren't hateful, keep the company of people who aren't restless and agitated, you know. This is, this is really important. So we find that company in each other, you know, to, to, to take refuge in um, the, the company of people who want to be free, who want to behave well and who want to be free. So in, um, in, in one of the things I read, Bhikkhu Bodhi um, suggests that you actually, we actually um, take refuge um, in, in the sense of... Uh, uh, all of the teachers uh, and the accomplished one through the years from the time of the Buddha, that you actually visualize um, all of the, you know, starting with Sariputta and Moggallana and Ananda and all, all these uh, wonderful um, companions of the Buddha uh, who became free in the time of the Buddha and on through the years, you know, that there have been many, many people who have accomplished both lay and monastic and the effort is to um, re- recall them, to bring them into our hearts and actually visualize them around the shrine, um, for example, and, and take refuge in, in them. Because that's, it's basically saying, that's what I want to be like. You know, that's, that's what I want to learn. That's what I want to understand, what they have come to know. And, and so, um, you know, it's very important, very uh, um, important uh, activity to, to take refuge in, in that um, body of people. Uh, there was this um, uh, teacher at, at IMS who, who, who tells a story about a, a woman who was quite um, psychic, who was doing a three-month retreat there. And um, during uh, the course of the retreat, on one night she was very um, restless and she just couldn't sleep. So she thought, well, I'll just go down to the hall and uh, I'll just meditate. And she thought to herself, well, nobody's going to be in there. It might be a little lonely, but let me just go ahead anyway. And then when she entered the hall, 
she was surprised to see that the whole room was full of people. And, uh, but then within a second she realized that actually it was a, a psychic impression that she was seeing, that she was actually seeing the, um, the impression of all of the people who have sat in this hall through all the years uh, since IMS was founded, you know, 25 years ago. And probably some of the people who were actually doing this retreat but were asleep in their beds, you know, <laughs> probably still meditating <laughs> you know, through the night and sitting in the hall. And uh, I mean, this, is, this can be a little far out, but I, I thought it was a, a fabulous example of uh, where we take refuge. You know, just consider the amount of, of hours and the commitment of all of the people in this room. And, and, and I know this is kind of a, a new center. You're building that momentum, you know, the, 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 the amount of time that one has spent in this very room um, endeavoring to be free through this, these practices. So we take refuge in Sangha, take refuge in the, the members of the Sangha that we've come to know. So it's the sense of, of um, trying to, to follow the Eightfold Path, to, to live morally, to train the mind, to awaken to truth, taking refuge in these kinds of sentiments. And really, as members of Sangha, we're saying that we're people who, who no longer take refuge in our personality or our individual views about things, you know, but actually sort of giving it over to a larger collective. And that, in that is this sort of release from self-absorbed perspectives. Sangha is communal. You know, Sangha is a place where our, our personalities and views are not as important in, individually as what's for the good of the collective. So we take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. It's said that at the simple level, if we simply take refuge in the the person, in the the teachings themselves, in the order of monks and nuns, then um, this conduces to a happy rebirth. But if we take refuge in the more transcendental or meditational aspects of, the, of refuge, then it conduces to freedom. So uh, taking refuge in the Triple Gem is actually a, a direct line, <laughs> a direct course to, to liberation, to freedom. So it, it just suggested that we <clears throat> essentially rest in the Buddha, find that place in the heart, find that experience. It's, it's an experience. It's not an idea. And you feel it. You know, settle down in your practice. I, I kind of go down into my belly. You know, it's I, I have this sense of getting under the mental activity. You know, underneath the sensations, underneath the thoughts, and being with them from that place of knowing awareness. If you can feel that, just finding that place, finding that experience, and fanning the flame of it, if you will, you know, kind of uh, building it. Resting in Dhamma, knowing that the truth of things uh, as they really are, impermanent, suffering and not self. We don't have the control that we think we have. Things can't be made to last. They don't last. If we're trying to do that, we're suffering. You know, resting in that, not in trying to make them last, 
things that are, by their nature, uh, doomed to end. You know? Resting in that and feel the power of, of uh, refuge and Dhamma. And then uh, resting in the, in the Sangha. It's like the resting, going to, to comfort of people who have uh, the sense that we also have. You know, to, uh, it's basically the realizing that freedom requires medicine sometimes, you know, requires good medicine. And so we turn to people who have the medicine. And that's, that's pe- the people in this room. So if, we're, um, if we want to empower the triple gem in our, in our lives, then um, these kinds of practices of taking refuge, whether you take it internally or externally, it doesn't matter. But just to uh, offer these thoughts to you and, and see, uh, hopefully they'll be helpful in your road or effort towards freedom. Yeah. Do you usually do questions? Yeah. I don't, don't know if anybody has a few reflections or questions. So thank you, thank you. I wish you the best. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.